Wow, what a song. I know it's an old one, but that was great. You guys are good at this. It's good to be in the house of the Lord, isn't it? So, Father, we come and worship you, praise you, thank you for the truths we just sang, and not just in the previous song, but all of them this morning. We are unspeakably blessed to be your children, heirs to all that belongs to Christ. Help us, Father, to learn this morning a little more, to appreciate the depth the riches, the glory, and wisdom of God. And Lord, I pray that you would protect us from error. These truths are difficult. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be discerning and careful. Lord, that your name would be exalted in our, in our proper understanding of what the Apostle Paul has sought to communicate to us by the direction of your Spirit. And so we give you thanks and praise for this time together, and we ask your blessing in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to spend some time with my brother, David. Went out to California. It was right at the end of the Shepherds Conference, and I connected with him, and we spent a couple of days together out in the desert. And um, that first night, I remember, we sat down in the in the in the hotel, and flipped on the TV, and, and we watched a show called Gold Rush. I, I may have mentioned this before, it seems like wherever I go when I flip on the TV, uh, Gold Rush comes on. And it's, it's all about a team of men who use heavy equipment to dig gold out of the ground in hopes of becoming fabulously wealthy. And part of the appeal of the program, at least for men, I think, is the reality that they often run into what appears to be insurmountable problems with their equipment, and somehow they surmount them. And the thing that keeps my attention as I watch that was the fact that the more they dug, the more they dug, the more gold they discovered. Of course, getting it out of the ground is the hard part. But as long as they were able to continue digging, there seemed to be no end to the treasure that they found. As I was studying Paul's letter to the Romans again this week, it occurred to me that those who work hard at digging gospel truth out of the sometimes dense pay dirt of the inspired text of Scripture, these are the ones who become spiritually rich indeed. To be sure, sometimes the labor is difficult, and believe me, this week the labor was difficult. You'll hear more about that. And the obstacles sometimes seem daunting. But so long as the digging continues, the treasure seems to have no end. From the beginning of the book of Romans, Paul has been helping us discover the spiritual gold that, that was laid there by the Holy Spirit with the prospect of making us fabulously wealthy in Christ. 
And that's important for us because I fear so many Christians, so many wonderful people that you know and love and I know and love, and, and sometimes it's me. We live like paupers, spiritual paupers. We don't know how rich we are. And we hardly ever see the riches because we don't dig in his word. Of course, we all understand the gospel in its most basic form. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This, my friends, is a a spiritual gold nugget that turns paupers into kings and and makes one greedy, ever more greedy, for more gospel gold. The old prospectors used to call it gold fever. And those who dig with a heart to believe and obey are never disappointed. Never disappointed. This morning we're going to stake our claim, as it were, in Romans 5, 12 through 21. And if you had any question about whether we'd be able to cover all of that, the answer is no. There's no way... And the work that lies before us is not going to be easy. Hopefully I've I've done some of the hardest work this week so that today and the weeks to come, it'll be easy for you to hear. I'll give you an idea of what happens behind the scenes a lot of times here uh, among the three of us who who preach. And we talk a lot about uh, the complexity of our study, that the complexity of our study needs to happen in our office But when we stand in the pulpit, that complexity needs to turn to simplicity. That's the difficulty. And so this morning, we want to drive a stake here into Romans 5, 12 through 21. And as I said, this is not going to be easy work, but let's begin, as always, by standing and open your Bible with me and follow along as I read in Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 12. As soon as I begin reading, you're going to start seeing the complexity. And so the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And notice there's a dash next to that. I want you to ponder that, because we're not going to talk about it probably until next week. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sin was not like the transgressions of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, 
much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of the righteous of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ are you following me therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass. But where, there, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. And you can be seated. That was a mouthful, wasn't it? You may not know this, but I'm, uh, I've always struggled reading. And reading a passage like this for me, it takes practice. Uh, this is complicated stuff. And uh, it's wonderful. It's magnificent. Uh, and, and I can tell there's, there's more coming that I haven't even studied out yet. The reason my introduction was a bit top-heavy with emphasis on the difficulty of digging for treasure was because discovering what the author wants us to understand in this particular text is, is not easy. In fact, many commentators, you know you're in trouble when you open about three, four, five, fourteen commentaries, and every one of them starts off with, this is the most difficult passage in the book of Romans. You are going to die. <laughs> this is hard, but it's not insurmountable. We can understand these things. Here, it's a passage full of contrasts. For example, sin versus righteousness, death versus life, disobedience versus obedience, trespass versus free gift. Does that, does that sound like opposites? But they are. Condemnation versus justification, disobedience and obedience. Sin reigning in death versus grace reigning in righteousness. Furthermore, the text reveals how sin came into the world. That seems like out of the blue, but it's so important. It makes a, a cryptic allusion, this passage, to a law before the law of Moses. A law before the law. There is something here about Adam being a type of Christ. What does that mean? And the list just goes on and on. Another noteworthy feature of this passage includes the following observations. Paul repeatedly uses the word one. The numeric one. One man's trespass, verse 15. Again in verse 15, one man, Jesus Christ, verse 16, one man's sin, verse 16, 
one trespass. Verse 17, one man, one man, one man. He repeats it three times in verse 17. Verse 18, one trespass. Verse 18, one act. There's something about the number one here. And let me give you a confusing revelation about what it means. It means there are two. And there's more. When you gather it all in one place, you find yourself looking at a large mound of spiritual pay dirt full of treasure, and you're not even sure what it is, but you know it's going to be great. But panning out all of these things is going to require some serious mental and spiritual labor, and that will be good for us. Now, before we begin picking through the details and identifying patterns that we want to tie up together, let me just take a moment to kind of give you a shortcut. I want to take you to the end of this passage, because the end of it... Actually, I want to, I want to show you two things. You'll see in your bulletin uh, that we call this the big idea. The preachers call this the big idea. We try to summarize everything the whole message in one statement, and this is going to be a, a summary statement for the next two or three weeks. And here it is. Jesus can secure our justification because God appointed him to be a better representative than Adam. And we sang just a few moments ago. Um, what's that phrase? See the true and better Adam. We sing that a lot, don't we? Do you know what that means? You will before we're done. So let me read this again. Jesus can secure our justification because God appointed him to be a better representative. That's a key word, representative. It's a better representative than Adam. This is important. Um, and so let me, let me give you a bit of an overview. As you know, Paul has belabored the point from the beginning of Romans that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone. He doesn't always say it that way. In Christ alone. Apart from any contribution on the part of the sinner. As the old hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. He has taught us that sinners are saved not on the basis of their own works, but by the work of Christ through his righteous life and through his atoning death on the cross in, in the place of all who will believe. This is what Romans is about, at least most of Romans. And the way that works, the, 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 the gospel complexity, how all of that works together, it goes like this. God in his grace counts or reckons or imputes all of our sin to the account of Jesus Christ 
which is why he died. And at the same time, he counts or reckons or imputes all of Christ's righteousness to our account. Okay, you're familiar with all of this. What we have in this passage then is the Apostle Paul giving us the legal basis for all of that. He's giving us the legal foundation for this reckoning, counting, imputing the righteousness of Christ to the account of lost and rebellious sinners. This is what we have in this passage. The idea that Christ's righteousness can be attributed to the account of an undeserving sinner has been challenged since the beginning of Paul's preaching, the beginning of, of the apostles' preaching, and even, to some extent, the preaching of Jesus himself. And so it's been challenged. In fact, it's still being challenged. The Roman Catholic Church calls this a legal fiction. But Paul begs to differ. I don't know about you, but I'm with Paul. As the apostle explains in this passage, there are only two groups of people in the world. This is how the number one becomes two. There is one of each. There are only two groups of people in the world. There are people who are, listen carefully, united with Adam, or you're in the other group and you are united with Christ. You've heard me talk almost ad nauseum about the glorious doctrine of union with Christ. And what Paul's going to teach us here is that if you are not in union with Christ, you are in union with Adam. You are in Adam. And before you came to Christ, if you are a child of God by grace through faith, you once were a son of Adam. You were once in Adam. But now you are, what's the phrase? In Christ. You are in Christ. Those who are united with Adam will follow Adam to death and condemnation. And those who are united to Christ will follow him into eternal life and freedom at the Father's throne. We can imagine here that the saints in Rome were, were probably already being challenged about this teaching that Paul has presented. Perhaps at the, at the core of the argument was this question. Is there any Old Testament precedent for preaching anything about imputed righteousness or imputed sinfulness? And the answer is, absolutely. That's what this text is about. Paul, once again, wants to demonstrate that what he's teaching is not novel. He is not an innovator theologically. He is merely taking what the Word of God has already said, and mostly through Moses. 
Paul is not attempting something new. He's not presenting something new. This is not a new doctrine. In fact, Paul's argument begins all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Now, we only have time to introduce Paul's topic here, but let's focus today on verse 12. Notice what Paul says in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, so now we know who the one is, one man, and whoever this one man is, we know he's Adam here, it is through him that sin came into the world. Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, I haven't given you an outline to follow this week, but if I did give you an outline, the first point would be the definition of imputation. And so you can scratch that on your sermon notes if you would like. And I encourage you to do so, do so for the sake of your small group discussion this week. The definition of imputation. Now I said what Paul's talking about is, is counting or reckoning or imputing. Imputing is the theological term that's mostly used for this. And so we want to talk about imputation. Now, again, I'm telling you, just so you can poke yourself or something to stay awake through this, it's so important that you learn this. Imputation is a really, really important doctrine. And we don't talk about it very much. It's a big word. And Paul uses other ways to describe it. But this way is important. And so the passage, this passage before us, is all about imputed sin through Adam and imputed righteousness through Christ. Now, what is imputation? Well, in its most basic form, let me give you this invitation. Imputation is to charge or to reckon something to one's account. To charge or to reckon something to one's account. So as Christians, we need to understand this doctrine because it's essential to the gospel. We don't bring our own righteousness. Righteousness is given to us. And you've heard me say this phrase many, many times already in these, what, 31 or 32 sermons in the book of Romans, that there is a righteousness you desperately need and don't have and can't earn. And so if you desperately need righteousness, it's got to come from somewhere, and if you can't earn it, you're in serious trouble. So where do you get the righteousness? And Paul's answer is, that righteousness is imputed to the sinner by grace, and received by faith. No one is saved from the just and holy wrath of God apart from the imputation of Christ's righteousness on our behalf. God takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus and he puts it on your ledger. Everywhere it said, 
debt, 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 debt. Or sin, 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 sin. Now you look at your record, the only thing God sees is righteous, 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 righteous. We are, as, Rome, as, as Martin Luther said, we are simul justus et peccator, which means in Latin, we are at the same time justified and sinful. I mean, that's reality. We are still sinful, right? We still commit sins. And yet, by God's grace, he has imputed righteousness to us, so we are righteous in his sight. That's justification. And frankly, there's no place in the Bible where this doctrine is more clearly and profoundly manifest than here in Romans chapter 5. This is where Paul unpacks imputation. What Paul teaches us here in verse 12 is that Adam's sin is reckoned or transferred or imputed to our entire race, the human race. Let me say that again, in case I put a word here that would turn it on its head. Paul teaches us in verse 12 that Adam's sin, Adam's sin, is reckoned, transferred, or imputed to the entire human race. Does that sound strange to you? We don't talk about that. We see ourselves as sinful in even as, even as Christians, we still sin. But we think of our sin only in terms of the things that I've done or am doing or am planning on doing. This means that the reason, listen carefully, this means that the reason you sin is because you're a sinner. That sounds very simplistic, but think about it. The reason that you sin is not because you've got a certain flaw. No, 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 no. You are at the core as an unbeliever. I'm talking about humanity. I'm not making a distinction between believer and unbeliever here. All, I'm talking about unbelief. I'm talking about those who are born into this world. You are born a sinner. You're born a sinner. And so the reason that you sin is because you are a sinner. Now that's going to become really important here, I think, in a moment. If I were to give you a second point, it would be this. I would call it the severity of the problem. It doesn't sound terribly severe yet. It just seems like a bunch of theological terms that I'm throwing at you. But this is really, really important. I think the reason Paul is uh, taking us so deep into these theological terms and truths is because we can, only a truly, we can only truly appreciate the glory of the gospel, the glory of the good news, when we see it against the backdrop of God's righteous judgment. And the fact that you cannot disassociate yourself from it, namely your sin and the condemnation that comes with it. Now, most people think of, of sin, once again, as something 
that they do or have done. It's something that they probably shouldn't have done. Maybe it's something they, maybe something they should stop doing and something they can stop doing. I mean, if they just put their mind to it in their hearts, they truly believe that if they just made a concerted effort in mind and, and, and maybe using some life hacks, they could stop sinning altogether. It's an interesting story that occurred to me from years past about Benjamin Franklin. And thankfully, I had it in my file, because this is great. Ben Franklin, uh, he, he bears out what Paul is teaching us, that, that our sin is not just external to us, it is internal. We don't sin because we were taught to sin. Um, let me ask you this, if, if, you, if you doubt that you were born in sin, let me ask you this question. Uh, do, you have any, do you have any siblings with whom you grew up under your parents? Most of you will probably say yes, whether they're adoptive children or, or, or siblings or, or whatever they are. Do you, have, do you have siblings? How many of you, let's just get to the point, how many of you have siblings? Mm-hmm. Great. Now, let me, here's my question. How hard did your parents have to work to teach you to be disobedient? <laughs> I heard an older man ask a, a young lady this down the hall, in the old fellowship hall. She was from another country, uh, from Russia, one of the old Russian countries. And uh, she said, I don't believe that people are inherently sinful. And he asked her that question. She, he said, um, how hard did your parents have to work to teach your sister to sin, to, to, to disobey them? And she said, <laughs> she fell right into it. She said, they did not have to teach her. It came naturally. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> it comes natural for everybody. So Ben Franklin didn't understand this. He didn't understand the imputation of sin to the human heart from Adam. So at one point in his life, Franklin decided uh, that he was going to attain perfection and that he would do it by practicing 13 specific virtues consistently. And here are the virtues, temperance, silence. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Order, resolution, frugality, industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, children, cleanliness, <laughs> child, uh, uh, not children, <laughs> cleanliness, chastity, and humility. And in his mind, how hard could that be? I mean, think about the, the Renaissance period. You think of the, the, the times when when uh, 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 during the revolution, during that period of history in, in, in the Western world, these were things that were, this, this was kind of the morality. It was called civility. And so all of these things, these 13 things. And so let me just quote Franklin. I judged it would be well, Franklin writes, not to distract my attention by attempting the whole at once, 
but to fix, to fix it in one, fix my focus on one of them at a time. And when I should master that one, then proceed to the other, and so on, till I should have gone through all 13. Toward this end, Franklin chose one virtue to master and began keeping a detailed scorecard, a journal, to record his successes and failures. Franklin's allegiance to his endeavor shines through his experience. As he admits, he expected himself to know the good and be capable of doing it. Isn't that interesting? I expected to know the good, and I expected that I would be able to do it. As I knew or thought I knew what was right and wrong, I did not see why I might not always do the one and avoid the other. Nevertheless, Franklin was forced to admit he discovered almost immediately that he was in over his head. He writes, I soon found I had undertaken a task more difficult than I had imagined. While my attention was taken up with the care and employment in guarding against one fault, I was often surprised by another. Another inclination was, was sometimes too strong for, for my reason. I couldn't reason my way into righteousness or out of unrighteousness. By the way, Ben Franklin, one of his best friends, you know, who he, you know what his name was? George not Washington, George Whitfield. And Whitfield preached to him. They had this relationship because Whitfield preached sermons, somebody transcribed them, and then they got printed. And guess who got the printing contract? Ben Franklin. And it bound these two together. And Franklin heard the gospel again and again, and again, and no doubt, I suspect, Whitfield heard this story and explained the problem, though Franklin never came to believe. And so you see, Franklin didn't understand, what Franklin didn't understand was that we sin because we are sinners, and we can't change the fact. We are sinners all, we are sinners to the core. Adam's sin had a had a catastrophic, ruinous effect upon the entire human race. Everybody, everyone was devastated by Adam's sin. Do you see why we needed a new and better Adam? Its consequences can hardly be overstated, Adam's sin. The reason there is war in Ukraine today is because of imputed sin. The reason marriages fall apart is due not, not specifically or entirely by actual sins, but more deeply and more permanently by imputed sin. The sin that has so stained your heart that every aspect of your being is corrupted by sin. It doesn't mean you're as bad as you could be. But it does mean that every aspect of your being is tainted by sin. We, our problem 
is imputed sin. Imputed sin in the depths of our deepest heart. Every human baby comes into this world is hardwired to sin. John Street calls them Christian vipers in little diapers. <laughs> Legan Duncan says, says, we are constitutionally sinful from birth. When theologians talk about original sin, that's another key term, you should write that down. Original sin, you've heard that. But you might not understand it. Original sin. When, when, when theologians talk about original sin, they're not thinking about the original sin that took place in the garden. That's not original sin. Original sin, the doctrine of original sin, speaks of the sin that is within the heart of man from the beginning. It glosses over, as a theological term, it's not speaking of sins you have committed. It's speaking about the fact that you are a sinner. And so theologians, when they use this term, they're thinking about the heart of sin that came upon the world as a result of original sin, of the original sin. The original sin was Adam eating the forbidden fruit. Original sin is the sin that was imputed to all men and women everywhere. In other words, when Adam sinned, everyone got what he had, like a virus, except incurable, apart from Christ. And so when they're talking about original sin, they're thinking of the corruption, the spiritual corruption that causes every man, woman, boy, and girl to be born in a state of sin. And by the way, once again, this is nothing new. Paul is not an innovator. Because long before Paul, there was another guy who thought deeply about theology, especially relative to his own sin, and so we read from King David out of Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And there we have both. We have the act of sin, and we also have original sin. And Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin so death spread to all men, because all sinned. If we had another half an hour to dive into this further, we would talk about death's place in this whole equation. But we don't have time today to, to cover this whole verse this morning. But pay special attention to that last phrase. Death spread to all men because all sinned. So here's the question. When Adam took a bite of the forbidden fruit, who took the bite of the forbidden fruit? You say, Pastor, you said that wrong. No, 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 let me read it to you so I don't get it wrong. When Adam took the bite of the forbidden fruit, who took the bite? 
of the forbidden fruit? And the answer is, you did. You did. You're the one who bit the fruit with him. Paul says, death spread to all men because all sinned. When? In Eden. This is imputation. Notice, he didn't say, all sin, present tense, and that's a given. I could show you a hundred scriptures in the Bible that says we're all sinners. We know that already. But that's not how all of this started. No, when Adam ate the fruit, you ate the fruit. This is how imputation works. God reckons or counts or imputes Adam's sin to your account. So that when he bit into that fruit, so did you. You see how hopeless your situation is? And I think that's Paul, Paul's point, at least in the first half of this. He wants us to understand how deep this is. You can't fix this. You can't fix this. Now, I realize that there is a difference between imputed sin and actual sin. Actual sin is when you personally and actually transgress God's command. And you do that. You, you, you may have done it this morning, on the way here with the kids in the car. I guarantee some of your kids probably did. <laughs> Not pointing any fingers. That's actual sin. But imputed sin, original sin, is sufficient grounds for God to justly condemn the whole world to condemnation. Now, to help you see this, to help you see that this is really what Paul is saying, let me point you to six scriptures in this context to support this truth. That it was one man who sinned. And when he sinned, you sinned. It all comes down, your problem comes down to what happened in the garden, in Adam. Verse 15. The many died because of the trespass of the one man. Verse 16. The result of the one man's sin. Verse 16b. The judgment followed one man. Verse 17. By the trespass of the one man, death reigned by the one man. Verse 18. The result of the one trespass is condemnation for all men. Verse 19. Through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners. All of this tells us, beloved, that your, your problem is far deeper than it appears. Far deeper than Benjamin Franklin thought it was. Your problem isn't, isn't merely that you commit actual sins, although you do, but that's not the deepest problem. Remember, the reason that you commit actual sins is because you're a sinner. The engine of that sin is in your heart, and there's no getting it out by works, by being good, 
by being better. You are a sinner by nature. And you are actually complicit with Adam in the sin that condemned you in the Garden of Eden. Now, our response to this should be, oh, that explains why I can't save myself. Oh, that's, that's why I, I feel like I can't conquer sin in my life. What I need, this should be your response. If this is true, then what I need is not a little cleaning up, a little life hack, a little making things a, a bit better to please God. Rather, I need a miracle. I mean, who can change a man's heart when the problem of his heart is something that happened in him thousands of years before he was born? I need someone not only to pay for my sins, but someone who has the authority to reverse and rescue and replace what I received by virtue of being born a son and daughter of Adam. Your problem is that you are a sinner by nature, that you are actually complicit with Adam in his sin. Our response to this is clear. God, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross. Now, I know that you're going to say, I know exactly what you're going to say, what, what, what you've already been thinking. Some of you are thinking, this is ridiculous, because that's not, say the word, fair. That's not fair. Why should someone else's sin and decisions affect me? I mean, this never happens in the real world. Right? But that's not true. It's not true. It happens in the world all the time. It happens all the time that, that you're impacted by a, a thousand, you're impacted in a thousand different ways by the actions of other people. Let me offer you just a few. I have a friend who grew up in Siberia. And when I met him, I asked him, What do you think about Siberia? Oh, I love Siberia. Uh, we were in Moscow at the time, and uh, he said, oh, if I could just take my family back. His name is Eugene. Um, if I could just take my family back to Siberia, we'd go in a minute. But he grew up in Siberia. And um, I said, so how did your family get to Siberia? He said, well, we didn't start in Siberia. My father, my, my grandfather, I don't, I don't remember if it was his grandfather or his great-grandfather, was a Baptist pastor behind the Iron Curtain, communism. One day, knock on the door. Uh, the guards, soldiers showed up, say goodbye to your husband. He's coming with us. Away they go to Siberia. You know what the family does? I mean, they don't say, ah, oh, see you later. <laughs> no, they packed up everything and they moved to Siberia. And it was too late. They, they had already shot him by the time he got there. Nevertheless, they, they planted their roots right there. They live in Siberia 
because of something their grandfather did. Um, when I got sick last year, I signed a document and gave power of attorney to my wife, legal authority to make decisions about our home, our finances, our health, practic practically everything in life. Anything that needed to be done, she could sign for it. It's common practice. It's common practice. Uh, you become the recipient of what another person does, whether you like it or not. The U.S. government is another example, for example. Uh, we are a representative republic. And that means when you vote to send someone to Washington, it's just understood that that person, if they go to Washington, will make decisions on your behalf, whether you like those decisions or not. And they are legally binding. And, and nobody balks at that. I mean, we might complain about the decision, but the reality is this is the way it works. And so what we learn here in Romans 5 is that God made Adam our, listen carefully, our federal head, or the term we like to use better is our representative head over all mankind. And so when man rebelled against God, you rebelled against God. Because Adam, who was your representative head, sinned on your behalf. So much so that when he sinned, you sinned. And so you see, Paul wants us to understand how bad our predicament is. This is a serious problem. It really is. Your problem is not something that can be resolved by a little cleaning up. You may say, well, I've never heard of this. And I don't like it. And I don't want it. This is not a drive through You don't get to pick and choose. This is, this is how you stand before God. You need to know now how you stand before God. So while there is time, oh, my friend, consider this. The reason... Paul's teaching you the bad news about Adam, your condemning representative head. The reason he's teaching you about that is so that you will love all the more Jesus, your saving representative head. By grace, through faith, you can be united to Christ, so that everything that belongs to Christ belongs to you. And though you don't experience everything that belongs to Christ in this life, you will one day. He is the new and better Adam. What Adam failed to do, Jesus did by his righteous life. And if we reject the idea of Adam being, listen carefully, if we reject the idea of Adam being our representative head so that his sin is put on our account, then you've got a big problem. Because if you reject that on the front end, if you reject imputation on the front end when it comes to the issue of sin, 
you reject it there, it is no longer available to you on the other side. Because what you need is imputed righteousness. If you reject imputed sin, then you reject the whole thing. Paul's teaching us that the bad news is really bad. But the good news is beyond marvelous. When you start digging into the glory of the new and better Adam, is it hard? Yes. Is it tough to get your brain wrapped around? Yes. Does it make you feel like your brain is being wrapped around something? Yes. But this is grace to you. This is the glorious grace that Paul has been talking about all along. Except, remember at the beginning of our study of Romans, I said, the point of this whole letter, or most of it, is that Paul does not want us to walk away from this letter thinking the gospel is only believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It is so much more complex than that. And yet, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. People can be saved if they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to know all of this. But whatever you do know from the Word of God, you need to be submissive toward. Jesus, our new and better Adam, came to save the hell-bound man. He is infinitely superior to Adam. Consider this. The first Adam was made from the earth, but the last Adam came from heaven. The first Adam was the king of the old creation, a creation full of death, while the new Adam is king and priest over the new creation. The first Adam was tested in the perfect garden. And he failed. He disobeyed God. The last Adam was tested in a terrible wilderness, a desert. And he obeyed God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he surrendered his will to God. The disobedience of the first Adam brought sin, condemnation, and death upon the human race. But the obedience of the last Adam brought righteousness, salvation, and life to all who will believe. Through the first Adam, death and sin reign in this world. But through the last Adam, the new Adam, the new and better Adam, grace reigns. And believers can reign in life. Why? Because Jesus is the better Adam. Jesus, here's Paul's point again. Jesus can secure your justification. Remember, everything leading up to this point, this verse, verse 12, has been about justification, 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 justification. And the question is, are we sure? Are we sure? And Paul is saying, let me add another stake to ground this doctrine by 
And then he just takes us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible and says, see, it's always been this way. It's always been this way. You see, Jesus can rescue, he can secure our justification because God appointed him to be a better representative than Adam. And for that, we praise him. Father, we do praise you and we admit, Father, these things are too high for us. At some level, we feel like we are in the deep end of the pool. We feel we, we should blush and tremble, tr- tremble before the eyes of our King who did all of this for us. Praise you for being a new and better Adam. Thank you, Father, for this text which shows us a different facet the glorious diamond of the gospel. And thank you, Father, for making us fabulously rich in Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.